Hello, and welcome to Worst Bestsellers, where we read about second wave feminist bounty hunters so you don't have to. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And for this episode, we read One for the Money by Jenna Ivanovich. Joining us to discuss this book our moms love is Rachel, former graduate student in feminist literary theory and Katherine Heigl apologist. Hello, Rachel. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so we were not kidding about this being a book that our moms love. Recently, I was in Florida with my mom, who listens to this podcast. Hello, mom. And we went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and she was asking who, I don't know, me to explain some character, and I was going through my explanation, and she was like, you know, I think maybe I only read, like, the first three Harry Potter books. And I was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) And she was like, I don't know. I mean, they were cute and all, but they just weren't as good as one for the money. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then I threw a butterbeer in her face. (laughs) I didn't really, because that would be a waste of butterbeer. And because I respect differing literary opinions, even when they are objectively insane. (laughs) Um, my mom, I don't think, thinks they're better than Harry Potter, but who knows? I never (laughs) asked her that specific comparison. Uh, But these were definitely a fixture in my house growing up. I did grow up in New Jersey, um, not in the area of New Jersey that the book takes place in, a little further north, but... I can remember, like, looking at all the covers on Amazon, I was like, oh, I remember almost every single one of these books that my mom would, like, get on the hold list for them at the library, and then we'd get the phone call on the answering machine that it came in, and, uh, yeah. So I, without having read any of them, even in my childhood, I I was very familiar with the concept and, uh, you know, the general world. Yeah, the the covers are very colorful and eye-catching. Rachel, you mentioned you mentioned you'd like stolen them from your mom and read them. Like, at what age did you start reading them? Um, yeah, so my mom had them all, and the covers are like you said, really colorful. And so th- I I was drawn to them even in, in middle school when I started picking things off my mom's shelf when I needed things to read, and they seemed much more approachable than sort of dark, scary mystery covers. And I think between the two of us, we've pretty much read them all up to this point, and there there are so many of them. Yeah, I think they're up to 22 now. As of this year, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and they've they've kind of run, she's kind of run out of puns, and now she they're just sort of like, adjective 20, whatever. But uh, I the, think she ran out of puns like a long time ago. Yeah. But the first one, she's good, one for the money. And this, by the way, this was published in 1994, which I guess because they're so colorful and because they're still coming out, I had assumed that the series maybe started later than it actually did. But then when I started reading the first few chapters, I was like, wait, is this set in the 80s? And I I think it's maybe supposed to be set in 1994 and written in 1994, but it was a weird time trip before I kind of figured out when it was published and what was going on. Yeah, like, as I said, my mom was reading them when I was growing up, so, like, I, I knew that they had been around since like 1994 but my problem is the constant realization that 1994 was 20 <laughs> years ago um because <laughs> i was like they're not that old they're that old they're that old uh yeah we're okay. that old <laughs> yeah yeah 
So, uh, just in case you uh, don't have a mom who reads these, or you yourself are not a mom who reads these, or perhaps you are not related to moms at all somehow, and you are not <laughs> familiar with these, um, Steph- these are the books about a character named Stephanie Plum, who is a bounty hunter in New Jersey. She's New Jersey is mentioned like once every paragraph, just in case you forget that they are in New Jersey. Which is actually, by the way, to anyone who's ever lived in New Jersey, we mention it a lot. You do. Well, my my impression is that it's not just New Jersey, but it's like New Jersey, like <laughs> no one fake in New Jersey actually theme park like Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever been to New Jersey. The only things I know about New Jersey come from these books and like Bruce Springsteen songs. Sorry, <laughs> Kate's gonna have a lot to tell you. Um, we'll have to do a separate <laughs> podcast about that. <laughs> Yeah, just really quick, the the interesting divide in New Jersey is that there's a part of New Jersey where Philadelphia is their city, and there's a part of New Jersey where New York is mm. the city that you mean when you say the city, and that's really the cultural divide of New Jersey, is which of those two cities you're closer to. So I grew up closer to New York, uh, Trenton and Hamilton, where... Huh, Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the story takes place are closer to Philadelphia. Interesting. Uh, I wish the book was set in Hamilton, and then we could just talk about Hamilton, <laughs> but it's not, so I guess we'll talk about other things for a minute, at least. Uh, so Stephanie Plum, she's, it's kind of like, I don't know, kind of a sex in the city type deal, where she's like a young single girl who's like bad with money, and uh I don't know, it's not really like Sex in the City. I just started talking. <laughs> but there's, I mean, there's a lot of talk about fashion, and this is why I thought it was the 80s, actually, because she, she wears, like, bike shorts and oversized t-shirts all the time. And also, her family members don't know what spandex is. So I was like, maybe this is supposed to be set, like, when spandex was first invented or something. But it that wasn't 1994. So I don't know, maybe her family is just really out of it fashion-wise. But at this point, it's hard to tell because Stephanie now is pretty out of fashionized also. Um, so Stephanie was a lingerie buyer for a, like, shitty department store, discount department store, and was laid off after the head of the department store was uh, arrested for embezzlement. So it's been six months since she's had a job. She's been hawking all of the things in her apartment, all of her appliances and furniture, just for enough money to get by. And um, she she's kept it a secret from her parents. So she's at uh, her weekly family dinner and finally admits to them, like, I don't have a job anymore. And her mother suggests, well, why don't you go down to Vinny, who works at the, the bail bond office? I heard that he was looking for someone to do filing. And she was like, oh, like, I don't want to do filing. I don't want to do, like, entry-level crap. But because of like what my job was, it's hard to find anything else that I'd be qualified for. And when she gets to Vinny's office, she's told by the receptionist, Connie, right? Mm -hmm. Connie, that the filing position has been filled, but that one of the bounty hunters who works for him, who he hires to find people who FTAs failure to appear in court is in the hospital with appendicitis, so she really needs some money quick. Uh, she can take on some of his jobs and find these people who have skipped on their bail 
And if she finds them, she gets 10% of their bail as compensation. And the first case that she gives him, uh, she gives Stephanie is for a guy named Joseph Morelli, who is a cop who shot someone and who his bail was $100,000. So it would be a $10,000 job. And he also happens to be a kid who she grew up with and had a couple weird sexual experiences with as a kid and then as a teenager. Yeah, which let's talk about that for one second because the first time they're six and I'm still not totally clear what exactly happened, but and one of the times she refers to it, it kind of sounds like he was fingering her. But then in another one, it seems like he didn't actually touch her and just looked. But either way, it was the way that she remembered it so fondly was weird. She describes it it as like the choo-choo train and he crawled between her legs and the, but she was mad because she didn't get a turn to be the train. It definitely to me read like a product of its time because reading it, I was definitely like, oh my God, like, why is this in here? But at the same time, like I'm thinking back to different like TV shows and things that I read and watched back then were like, playing doctor was like a cute dumb thing that kids did where they essentially sexually explored each other's bodies as children and we just thought it was adorable and not weird yeah anyway that happened and then also she lost her virginity to him when they were in high school and then she hit him with her car <laughs> yes. on her bed. several years later definitely good because after she lost her virginity to him, he spread rumors about her and she was still bitter all those years later. And like, he never called and blah, blah, blah. So she's uh, very eager to get some money on Joseph Morelli's behalf, basically. Yes. For many reasons. So she decides to go out and start looking for him and goes to all of the obvious places Um, like checks his apartment, checks a couple other places and crosses paths with his cousin, right? Yeah. Mooch Mm -hmm. Morelli. Yeah. And you'd think, you'd think she would have all this insight because, you know, she's always lived there and she knows like his cousin and his mom and stuff. And it seems kind of like, oh, you know, she'll be able to get him because she has this extra insight, but maybe not though. Yeah. She more seems to just like happen upon his cousin and happen to follow him instead of using any kind of like smarts or wits or insider knowledge. Yeah. She's not great at her job. Yeah. Which granted it is like her like literal first day that she's had no training or desire to do prior to this. Yeah. For Um, sure. And to sort of help that along, Connie at the bail office gives her the number of this guy named Ranger, who's one of the other bounty hunters, who's been doing it for like a million years and makes like bank doing this. And he agrees kind of like out of amusement because he doesn't think she's going to stick with it to meet with her and kind of like give her the lay of the land and give her some suggestions. And the first time they meet, it's very clear he doesn't take her seriously and he doesn't think that anything is going to happen. And he doesn't think that if anyone's going to bring in Morelli, it's not going to be this like stupid girl who just showed up for the first time and 
whatever. Yeah, and he, I mean, he does encourage her to start with some of the easier cases instead, but she's like, no, I need the money, like, I want to, and I hate Morelli, so I want to do this one. He's like, what else? So he, like, gets her a gun, and he gets her handcuffs, and uh, a baton, and all this stuff that he thinks she should have as a bounty hunter, and she uh, takes all this stuff and feels, like, super confident that with this, with these new tools, she'll be able to be real good at bounty huntering. <laughs> and she's not. <laughs> and also, and like, she's afraid of the gun. She takes the bullets out of it and keeps it empty all the time. Yeah, like the first thing she does is drop it on the floor when she's uh, interviewing Morelli's mother and is trying to give her a business card. She just like upends the gun onto the floor and it's like, whoops. And Yeah. And the second thing that she does after she uh, meets up with Morelli's mother is she goes to the gym where... So the reason that Morelli shot this guy was that he was at the apartment of... He claims his version of the story is that he went to an informant's apartment, um, a woman named Sandra? Carmen. Carmen. Carmen, I don't know where Sandra came from. A woman named Carmen. Um, Carmen Sanchez. Carmen, that's probably where it is. Carmen Sanchez. Carmen San Diego? Jinx. Oh my god, what if Stephanie Plum had to find Carmen San Diego? It's the ultimate bounty hunter job. It is. Okay, it's every 90s kid's dream. Oh my god. I hope that's, uh, I don't know, tantalizing 23. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> But back to number one. <laughs> so, um, so Morelli got a call from his informant, Carmen Sanchez, Diego, who told him, told him, you know, I have information for you. You need to come over right away. And his version of the story is he got there. He knocked on the door. The door was opened by this guy, Ziggy. He didn't see Carmen anywhere. There was another guy in the apartment, someone he didn't recognize, Ziggy pulled a gun on him, so he pulled his gun on Ziggy and shot at him and killed him. And then somebody hit him and knocked him unconscious. And when he woke up again, uh, Ziggy was dead. The other gun was missing. The other person who had been in the apartment was gone. Carmen wasn't in the apartment, and he was being arrested for murdering Ziggy in cold blood because there was no evidence to prove that he hadn't. So Ziggy worked for this very locally famous boxer named Ramirez, Benito Ramirez. So that's Stephanie's next stop is that she goes to the gym where Ramirez hangs out to ask him questions. And he's like super rapey and gross. Mm -hmm. Trigger warning for the rest of this episode. This guy is super rapey and gross and is super rapey and gross to many women in very unsettling ways yes uh so he he comes on to her and she dismisses him and he won't take no for an answer so he grabs her and she tries to get rid of him and tries to tell him you know like i'm a bounty hunter and here's a law enforcement agent like let go of me she hits and him he with pushes her purse her. Yeah. yeah what she does not do is like threaten him with her gun or other assorted weapons that she now has in her purse she just yeah. hits him with her purse. Yeah, which then uh, Morelli comes... Wait, this is when Morelli comes and saves her? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I didn't want The first that. time he... Yeah, so he comes and <laughs> saves her, and then he's like, what the fuck, you had a gun in your purse, I didn't use that. And she's like, ah, I don't know, I'm a girl. Uh, anyway, so he saves her, and then she's like, oh, well, great, like, I found you, and I have a bounty on you. And he's like, nice try. 
And he, do they talk at this point, or does he just run away? They, I think he just takes it. off at this point. Yeah. Like, they banter well, for a little bit. Yeah. There's some flirty like, banter, for sure. Yeah. And, but also, this starts the pattern of, like, he saves her from almost being, like, raped and assaulted, and then kind of, like, assaults her. He's, like, very physically forceful with her, right after she's just been, like, beat up by this other guy. So he's, he's like, angry, but he's, like, passionately angry. So mm-hmm. he throws her against a wall and, like, yells at her for being so reckless. But you you know, or you, f- you start to figure out it's, it's just because he loves her. Right. And because the books are narrated by Stephanie, we also know that she finds it kind of hot when he does this. Mm-hmm. Even though part of her is also like, ew, no, not this guy. But mostly, yes, this guy. Mm-hmm. Is her narration. So after this happens, I think at this point she decides that she's going to go for one of the smaller bounties just to get some quick cash. Yeah. No, no, she gets the car first, right? She mm. she calls up this guy Ranger, the the other bounty hunter, to help her um, get into Morelli's house to see if there's any clues there. And when they're at the house, there are no clues, but there are the keys to his brand new car and his house keys that are just waiting, you know, inside. And Ranger gives her the keys and says, you know, so in case you have to get back in the house again, you don't have to call the landlord. You know, you can just go in. And she's been driving this really shitty car because her car was repossessed. And she sees his, like, shiny new car and and thinks, like, wow, he'd be really fucking pissed if I drove this car. So, of course, she drives his car and starts driving it around instead. um, Which I feel like, I feel like it's actually kind of a good idea. I feel like it's one of Stephanie's better ideas. (laughs) Maybe not thought through fully, but this idea, like, if I take his car, he'll be mad and try to come after it. Not bad. Um, Oh, okay. This was something I admit I wanted to ask you to comment on it as a Jersey person. Um, okay. Stephanie makes a big deal about how when she parks the car, she takes the distributor cap off of it so nobody can steal <laughs> it. And she's like, and everybody in Jersey knows this trick. And everybody in Jersey is always taking the distributor cap off their cars so nobody can steal them. And I was like, what the fuck is a distributor cap? Is everybody in Jersey really doing this? Do I need to be doing this so people will not steal my car? Like, tell me about uh, distributor caps, Kate. I don't know what a distributor cap is, except through, you know, television and things where people take the distributor cap so you can't drive the car. I don't actually know what it is. It could be a deus ex machina for all I know. Um, (laughs) They don't teach it to us in Jersey. Uh, But then, you know, they don't even really teach us. And you took driver's ed in Jersey, right? So you would know. I did. I did take driver's ed in Jersey. Interesting. And we learned how to do bike hand signals. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, we learned that in Illinois and all too. sorts of stupid shit, but not distributor caps and what to do with them. Well, Stephanie Ponce says everybody knows in Jersey, so well. And this I is one. Of, this is the place where I mention how I, I watched the movie version of this book um, last night for the second time, <laughs> and um, they it's it's set like contemporary. It's like in the contemporary setting. I think the movie was made in like two thousand and two or. Oh, 2012. The movie's made in 2012. Oh, wow. But so they updated that bit to, like, a fuse instead of a distributor cap. So I don't know if this is actually, like, an old car thing. Like, 90s oh, like cars, cars don't, I don't know have them anymore? Cars may not have them anymore. They may also. I am not super knowledgeable about the inside of a car. But 
I think the people who made the One for the Money film also did not think that that was super common. <laughs> so they went with like the starter fuse or something, which I also would not have known about. But okay, I'm going to Google distributor cap. And Kate, you can bring us forward on the plot. I'll check back in after I figure this out. All right. Um, so at this point, she decides she needs more money because uh, her phone was shut off. So she, her, her phone is shut off. And one night while she's at home, she hears a knock on her door and she thinks that's weird. And when she goes over to the door, she hears Benito Ramirez standing outside of it saying, you know, I found out where you live. Like I tried to call you and your phone is, is disconnected and nobody rejects Ramirez, like the champ, nobody rejects the champ yeah he talks to himself in the third person and calls himself the champ like a goddamn super villain yeah um so she she obviously doesn't let him in and her she has like some mega steel door that he wouldn't be able to get through anyway even when he's pounding on it so after a while he leaves and she goes outside and he jerked off all over her door which is classy Um, Mm -hmm. so that's when she decides she needs enough money to turn her phone back on. So she decides to take Connie and Ranger's advice and go after some of the smaller bounties to just get enough cash to kind of like get her through until she can get the big payoff. Uh, so the first one is this drug dealer kid who's local who, or car thief kid who's local or the, the first one I think is, is it, it him or is it a drunk guy? Mm. She doesn't see the drunk guy first. What does matter? What does matter is that according to popularmechanics.com, cars today don't have distributors or distributor caps. Uh huh. Uh huh. They. This is actually really complicated. I'll let you Google it if you care. But (laughs) uh, short version, no, we don't have that anymore. But it was something that was related to your spark plugs somehow. So I guess now maybe we just have like better spark plugs. Uh, my dad would know. We should have my dad as a guest. Both my parents as guests on this podcast. My mom to explain Stephanie Plum and my dad to explain distributor caps. <laughs> Family podcast. Very thrilling for all listeners. <laughs> um, so she takes in this drunk guy who was like out on a DUI and missed his bail. And that's a little bit of money. It's really easy to get him from the bar and drive him to the cops and get a bounty on that. And then the second one she takes is this drug, a car thief kid who she like drops her bag, which has her gun and all of her other shit in it. He takes it and then locks her out of the house. So she calls Ranger and is like, uh, I'm at this bounty. This kid stole all my shit. He's inside with my gun. I don't know what to do. So he shows up to help her. And together they manage to wrestle the guy down and bring him in for the bounty. Ranger gets shot in the leg in the process, so he's kind of out in the hospital recuperating (laughs) after this. This scene is also notable for, like, one of the many times where Stephanie Plum, as narrator, describes her body in, like, an annoying Allie McBeal-ish way. Where she's like, oh, it is so like, Allie McBealish. <laughs> that's I think that's really what I meant earlier when I said this is like Sex in the City. It's like Allie McBeal meets Absolutely. Kathy meets 
Um, <laughs> like Walker, Texas Ranger, like those three things. Um, so anyway, so she, she tackles him and she's like, and I tackled him with all 125 of my pounds. Okay, maybe 128, but only like, because I'd eaten pizza recently or like something like that. And like, she's Mm -hmm. always doing that kind of like jokey thing with her weight where no matter what she says is, it's not like a huge number. And she's always measuring it in like units of like three pounds or like. (laughs) <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I feel like a lot of, like, Sweet Valley High was always doing this, too. Like, I need to lose, like, two pounds. It's like, girl, like, just, that's not really a negligible number. You could go up and down that amount by how much water you drank in one day. Like, let's all <laughs> calm down about this. But anyway, Stephanie Plum, very concerned about that all the time. Yeah. But the good news is she does weigh enough to tackle that dude once she finally gets him back out of the house. Yes. Um, and she gets money. She's able to turn her phone back on. And she finds out that um, Ramirez had called her parents looking for her when her phone was turned off and is generally, like, he's had, like, another encounter with her where he was just, like, creepy as hell. And she went to his manager, Jimmy Alpha. Which is totally cool name. <laughs> yes. Totally not fake. And his manager. His manager was very apologetic and was like, oh, like, I'm so sorry. Like, I heard that he treated you badly. Like, I'm so sorry. He should know better than that. Like, I'm going to make sure that he's disciplined for it. And I'm going to have a talk with all those other men who were in the gym who ignored him beating you up and almost raping you because that's not right. And, like, I'm really stressed out about this. And she's like, "Uh, I've heard that, like, a lot of he's raped a lot of women before and the guy's like, oh, like, well, well, you know, I, I wouldn't know about that. Like, he's a little rough with women, and, and I'm, I'm trying to, to get him not to do that anymore, but I, I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah, he just seems like a very, like, frazzled, kind of well-meaning guy or whatever. And Ranger keeps saying, like, oh, is it, I don't know, people around town keep saying, like, well, he's a good guy, and it's such a shame because he's you know, been a boxing manager all this time, and he finally got a winner, but he's a jerk, and, like, you know, he probably just needs the money, and he's... People around town are, like, pretty sympathetic, basically, toward uh, Mr. Alpha. Yeah. So, she also, in this point, at some point, when she's doing her bounty huntering, meets these two prostitutes who she's asking about... Like, Carmen, if they knew Carmen. Yeah, and if they've heard of, you know, who this guy might have been that was hanging around them, if they've seen Jimmy Morelli, uh, or Joe Morelli, and all sorts of stuff. And so she goes back to them a few times to, like, pick up hints, and they're Lula and Jackie. Yes. And Lula's very chatty, and... Mm -hmm very happy to answer all her questions and like gossip. And Jackie is very like constantly being like, we, we don't, we won't tell you anything. Like we're not going to talk to you. We're going to get in trouble if we talk to you. Like Lula, shut up. Yeah. In trouble with their pimps, by the way. And so the way I liked these characters kind of, but Lula and Jackie, like the way they were described and the way they were handled was one of the more problematic things in a pretty problematic book. Um, because it really is making light of like, it's clearly played for laughs when Jackie's like, our, our pimp's going to get us like whatever, like that. And then also Stephanie as narrator is always describing their, I mean, she's calling them like fat and talking about how they're like squeezed into their tube tops and all, it's just gross the way she describes them. And then also the way their dialogue is written. It's like clearly, 
you know, stereotypical, like, sassy black friend talk for Lula. Or I guess probably sassy Latina friend. Sassy ethnic. They're, they're like, sassy ethnic hookers. And, you know, they're there to help out Stephanie. And it's just gross, really. But at the same time, I did like Lula. Yes. And Lula goes on to be a a really major character in the rest of the series. But the portrayal of her never gets beyond this very cartoonish, like, she's always wearing clothes that are too tight, and she always is talking about how hungry she is, and she's always, like, chatting too much, and she always talks to this sassy black friend kind of way. And, it, you know, she it, she's fun, and she's, like, comedic relief as a sidekick, but it's, it's pretty one-dimensional. As actually is pretty much everyone in this book, including Stephanie, but... Yeah, no, true story. <laughs> So to just, like, breeze through, the book's very repetitive. There's a lot of, like, her going to the same places to check things out and to, like, look for Morelli. Uh, So basically, he saves her a couple more times from, like, shitty situations. And they come up with this deal where he'll, if if she helps him find the mysterious other witness from the shooting and clear his name, he'll turn himself into the police with her so that she can get the bond, but he'll have at that point enough evidence to clear his name. So they kind of like go into this together and uh, they keep investigating together. Ramirez keeps being super like sketchy as hell and creepy. Like he calls her a bunch of times and like leaves messages on her answering machine that are creepy. One of them, he's very clearly raping a girl and making her listen to it on the phone and then calls back and like leaves a message of the girl saying like no it was really good like crying it's awful it's awful it's just it's and awful. and she calls the police at that point it, she does what oh i think she records that in her answering machine and she gives the police the tape and they're kind of like shrug oh my god another thing in this another recurring thing is Ramirez keeps doing this creepy shit to Stephanie and she's like well I don't want to tell the police about it because I don't want people to think like I'm weak or like I'm just a weak woman um because you know if this was happening to Ranger he wouldn't call the police and it's like yeah like Ranger's not gonna get the same gendered violence that you're getting Stephanie so maybe like calm down but uh that's one time where she's like well it's not on my behalf that I'm going to the police I'm going to the police to try to help this other girl so it's okay which is nice, I guess, even though they can do nothing for her. They don't have enough information. But it's a recurring and troubling theme of the book. It's kind of implied, too, that the police won't do anything to Ramirez unless they get, like, a really good, solid lead because he's, like, kind of the hometown hero and everyone, like, his picture's on the wall everywhere and he's, like, kind of hailed as you know, the next big thing. And there there are good cops, like her brother-in-law or, or cousin-in-law, who's a cop who teaches her how to use her gun, and a couple other people who absolutely would turn him in. But, you know, overall, the feeling is that, you know, you'd need a lot of evidence to get cops to turn on Ramirez. And also, a lot of the women are very reluctant to testify or come forward because they know they won't be taken seriously, A, and B, that Ramirez or someone will then come after them for coming forward at all. But yeah. Stephanie's fear is separate and different that she just wants to be taken seriously as a bounty hunter, even though she really has not earned that, to be honest. Yeah. 
Because there's definitely a divide where whenever he's doing stuff that involves other people, where, like, it's clear that he has other women in his sights or other people who she knows, like, she's very quick to call the police and to get them evidence and to, you know, do whatever and is very angry that it's taking so much that he's raped all these other women and is still out on the streets. But whenever it comes to her own personal safety, that's like a whole different ballgame. Yeah, and similarly, Um, when people, like, who are witnesses to Ziggy's killing start, like, disappearing or getting killed off, Stephanie also is, like, trying everything she can do to make sure that they're safe. Like, the woman and her child, she's, like, the police have to take care of them, they have to get them out of there. And so she's got this, like, savior complex thing going on, where, like, she's always the good guy. Yeah, and it is an interesting thread to run through, because I think there is a real concern then as now that if you come forward as a victim of rape or sexual assault, like that the police won't take you seriously. And that is some of what's going on here, but it's not all of it. Yeah. Cause then, cause really it's more, it's more about just Stephanie not wanting to do it is like her stated reason for it. Yeah. Like it's definitely, I would say that it's a very different thing when it's about her than it is when it's about the other women. Well, it's, I don't get the feeling that Janet Ivanovich is trying to make a point about how women are not trusted or taken seriously when they report rape, especially like, you know, worker, sex workers. I don't think there's like a feminist point there. Yeah, if there is, it's very proto-feminist. I wonder, I mean, I guess you've read more of these. Would you say she gets any better about that? Is that a recurring theme or... I would not say that. No, well, <laughs> that would not be a that's thing. Too bad. That <laughs> that's too bad. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that, like, I almost feel like it's maybe f- feminist unintentionally because it's just reflecting reality. Where she's writing it this way because mm-hmm. this is the reflection of reality. Like, if you're a woman and you come forward and a fam- you claim a famous man raped you, nothing's going to happen. And yeah. she's not necessarily writing it that way to make a point, but writing it that way because that's how the world is, but because that's an inherently misogynistic thing that happens in the world, it then paints the her actions as kind of, you know, proto-feminist. And that's something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, speaking of other women, as she gets, you know, more and more embroiled in this thing, uh, she wakes up one day and she looks out her window and... Lula, the prostitute who she's been chatting with and, you know, using to get information from, is just, like, brutally brutalized and assaulted and hanging from her fire escape. Yeah, and, like, naked and, like, handcuffed to it. Um, so this is just after Ramirez had left her a message saying that she was go- he was going to leave her a present. Oh, yeah. So she calls the police and they come and they like help Lula and she's, you know, obviously not dead because as uh, Rachel just said, she's in later books, but they, she's very badly hurt. She's in the ICU and Stephanie's really badly shaken by it. And that's around the time that she and Morelli kind of team up and he puts bugs in her apartment so that anything that happens, any further phone calls, if anyone else were to come he'll be able to hear it from this, like, surveillance van that he's been living out of on the road, on the run. Totally cool. Totally normal. (laughs) Yeah. And a couple other things happen. Uh, A bomb is put in her car at one point, in his car that 
she's still using and uh, it kills somebody else, but it was very clearly meant for her. And finally, uh, she puts all the pieces together and figures out who, what happened in the apartment that night based on Morelli's recollections and some other evidence that she finds who the other person in the apartment was. It's this guy who works for the butcher that's across the street from this appliance store that she's been at for various plot related reasons that really aren't important. Uh, So she follows him and she calls Morelli and he comes too, and they find the body and the gun of Carmen and, you know, everything's all set and, and they have enough evidence to get Morelli off. So she locks him in the back of the refrigerator truck with the corpses and then drives the refrigerator truck to the police mm-hmm. <laughs> to turn him in to get, you know, the bond money that she's owed. And after doing all that, she comes home and somebody's in her apartment and it's Jimmy Alpha, Ramirez's coach, who it turns out is kind of the mastermind behind this whole operation of random things that with the mob and drugs and money and trying to make enough money so that he can retire even though Ramirez because Ramirez Ramirez is a shithead and he knows it and like he's been helping Ramirez get rid of all these girls that he rapes and assaults and then he calls people to kill and get rid of and all these terrible things and there's a scuffle in the apartment and she shoots him after he shoots her and he dies, and she's wounded but okay, and Morelli's let off, and they eat pizza together romantically in front of a baseball game. Yes, and that's the end. Basically. Very romantic. Not at all creepy. Nope. (laughs) Totally a normal, healthy relationship. Definitely not Stockholm Syndrome. Not in the slightest. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely, like not great it's very problematic but at the same time I feel like it's not necessarily problematic in a way that's different than many other like lady and dude who you know have chemistry but are fighting all the time and are rivals but they have sexy banter and their sexual tension and eventually they're gonna get together and you know, that that we see in a lot of media. Like, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's worse than Mm -hmm. your typical variation of that. I was just reading this article today. I want to say that friend of the show, Margaret, shared it on Twitter, but it might have been someone else. Um, Definitely a friend of the show, because anyone who is my friend, I refer to as friend of the show for funsies. So some, (laughs) some friend of the show shared this article, and it was talking about the history of men spanking women in movies and I guess in like the 30s and 40s and 50s it was so common for this to happen in like a romantic comedy like the man to be like oh like she needs to be taught a lesson and just like playfully spank her or sometimes like kind of hard it seemed like and that was just so common in movies and there's this article I'll find it again and link to it in the show notes and there's just like a billion gifs of like, Catherine Hepburn and all these, like, old-timey movie star ladies getting spanked in the middle of a movie. And that was just, like, a common sign that, like, oh, these two are going to end up together. And I, that's kind of how I feel. I feel like this is, like, that, but of the 90s. 
like, in a few more years, we're going to look back and be like, man, it's fucked up that the 90s had all these, like, romantic couples that started off in kind of a Stockholm Syndrome-y, like, way. Whereas, you know, now we're like, oh, it's fucked up there's so much spanking in the 40s. Like, <laughs> we're not too far from the point where we're going to look back and be like, yeah, and, like, 70 Plum is weird. And, I mean, it is yeah. weird now, but I feel like we maybe haven't quite totally gotten as far away from that for it to be, like, sh- shocking. It's just kind of like, oh. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it's like one of those things where looking at it now compared to, you know, where we are now, it's like, yeah, like, this is really problematic and this is, like, not okay, but it's not any more not okay than other things that are coming out of the same time period in the same sort of, you know, genres. Yeah, like, when I read these originally, they were some of the first sort of romantic not romance novels they're really light romance novels maybe and i think they get more romantic as the series goes on but i thought they were kind of like not like titillating but kind of sexy and kind of fun and i like they were sort of illicit reading for me at the time this is like middle school and now when i go back it's really disappointing it's like don't don't ever go back and reread things that you found exciting in your childhood because they're your faves are all problematic like (laughs) especially your, your childhood faves like it's yeah, it, it. I'm hoping this isn't like formative for me. I don't. I don't think so. But yeah, <laughs> there's definitely worse things. Yeah, no, it's true. Could have been. So okay, um, yeah, that's the plot. I don't know. Like Kate said, it is very repetitive. A lot of you know, actually, it's kind of like a Carmen San Diego game where she just goes <laughs> to different places and like talks to a person, gets a clue, and then you go to the next place. Um, except there's maybe more repeating of places. I guess that's kind of just maybe what mysteries are like. I don't read a lot of mysteries. But it's it's repetitive. There's a lot of, like, Jersey jokes. There's a lot of um, family jokes. Like, her mom wants to set her up with her man, and her mom wants to cook her food, and her grandma's sassy, and just a lot of repeated jokey elements. It's fine, basically. Yeah, that that's basically my feelings on it as well. Um... You know, it's not, it's like reading it was a constant like wincing and being like, I can't believe this was a thing. But looking at it as a product of its time, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, this was a thing. Of course, this was how this went. That's what everything was doing back then. Back then, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I out. mean, the, the thing is, there's she's still writing them now. And um, I, I don't think they've changed I mean I know they haven't changed much like the tone hasn't changed much that I hate to spoil it for everybody but like romantically Morelli and Stephanie are still will they won't they at this point wow you know 25 years 22 22 books it's like 25 years um and I noticed some people talking about online like people who are super fans of this series call it Stephanie time where time passes and like the world changes but no one in the books gets any older at all so she's 30 (laughs) in this book and she's like 35 now even though it's been 24 years since the first book so there's still there's this like perpetual cycle of just like flirting and uh, will they won't they and that's interesting because we'll get to our reader's advisory in a bit my suggestions are all comic books and that's I, I that's like what most comic series do too I mean they'll stop and reboot after a while but you know if you look at like the x-men they're always kind of like the same age ish but of they'll get a new technology or, like, a new plot point or something. But people, yeah. 
the younger characters are allowed to grow up, but the older characters pretty much stay the <laughs> same. Kitty Pride's not 13 anymore, but Cyclops is still pretty much where Cyclops was when Kitty Pride was 13. Yeah, it's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, reading these, it was odd, because, like, there, there would be jokes, I'd be like, oh, that's so funny. Like, probably one in three jokes, I would be like, that's funny. And the other two-thirds, I'd be like, ooh, that's racist, or like, ooh, that's just as, like, body shamey, or ooh, like, that's whatever, like, that's problematic. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, again, I don't want to keep coming back to this, but, like, all our moms like this, and I think they probably are pitched at, like, maybe an audience who's not terribly woke, you know, mm-hmm. they are not racist and sexist actively, but maybe they just haven't quite kept up with the changing vocabulary and things that you maybe could have kept up with. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that that's really a good a good summary of why these books are the way they are. You know, like you you went through women's lib, maybe like in the 70s you read Mids magazine and then you settled down and started bounty hunting and you just didn't have time to keep up with like <laughs> how you're supposed to talk about people now. So, I mean, obviously that's, like, a very... I would say these are for, like, older white women of Mm -hmm. a certain level of privilege, and those ladies are probably still going to keep reading and enjoying these. And if you are not that description, you may have some issues with it, probably. Yeah. So let's, let's jump in, then, to our dramatic readings, and you can hear some of these issues firsthand. All right. So our first dramatic reading is one of the scenes of Stephanie's family. Uh, Her mother has invited her to dinner and she is there with her mother, her father, her grandmother who lives with her parents and uh, this man named Bernie who runs an appliance store who her mother's trying to set her up with. So she's just come over straight from bounty hunting. Um, She had just had a run in with Morelli I think this is the one where he threw her keys in the dumpster, maybe? Something just happened. She's not prepared to, like, meet a person. She's, like, dressed crappily and stressed out and kind of pissed that her mother kind of sprung this on her. So they're sitting down for dinner, and uh, I will be reading Stephanie, and Renata will be reading Grandma, and Rachel will be reading Bernie, who is the man who her mother's trying to set her up with, and her mother. I sort of work for an insurance company, I told him. You mean like a claims adjuster? More like collections. She's a bounty hunter. She tracks down dirty, rotten fugitives just like on television. She's got a gun and everything. She reached behind her to the sideboard where I'd left my shoulder bag. She's got a whole pocketbook full of paraphernalia. Grandma Marzer said, setting my bag on her lap. She pulled out the cuffs, beeper, and travel pack of tampons and set them on the table. And here's her gun. Isn't it a beauty? I have to admit it was a pretty cool gun. It had a stainless steel frame and carved wood grips. It was a Smith & Wesson five-shot revolver, Model 60. A thirty-eight Special. Easy to use, easy to carry, Ranger had said and it had been much more reasonable than a semi-automatic, if you call $400 reasonable. My God, put it away! Someone take that gun from her before she kills herself. 
The cylinder was open and clear of empty rounds. I didn't know much about guns, but I knew this one couldn't go bang without bullets. It's empty. There are no bullets in it. Grandma Mazur used both hands wrapped around the gun with her finger on the trigger. She scrunched an eye closed and sighted on the cat and sighted on the china closet. Kapow. Kapow, kapow, kapow. My father was busy with the sausage dressing, studiously ignoring all of us. I don't like guns at the table, and the dinner's getting cold. I'll have to reheat the gravy. The gun won't do you no good if you don't have bullets in it. How are you going to catch those killers without bullets in your gun? Bernie had been sitting open-mouthed through all of this. Killers? She's after Joe Morelli. He's a bona fide killer and a bail dodger. He plugged Ziggy Koleska right in the head. I knew Ziggy Koleska. I sold him a big screen TV about a year ago. We don't sell many big screens. Too expensive. He buy anything else from you? Anything recent? Nope. But I'd see him sometimes across the street at Sal's butcher shop. Ziggy seemed okay. Just a regular sort of person, you know. Noah had been paying attention to Grandma Merzer. She was still playing with the gun, aiming and sighting, getting used to the heft of it. I realized there was a box of ammo beside the tampons. A scary thought skittered into my mind. Grandma, you didn't load the gun, did you? Well, of course I loaded the gun. And I left the one hole empty like I saw on television. That way you can't shoot nothing by mistake. She cocked the gun to demonstrate the safety of her action. There was a loud bang, a flash erupted from the gun barrel, and the, tri- and the chicken carcass jumped on its plate. Holy mother of God! My mother shrieked, leaping to her feet, knocking her chair over. Dang, guess I left the wrong hole empty. She leaned forward to examine her handiwork. Not bad for my first time with a gun. I shot that sucker right in the gumpy. My father had a white knuckle grip on his fork, and his face was cranberry red. I scurried around the table and carefully took the gun from Grandma Mazur. I shook out the bullets and shoveled all my stuff into my shoulder bag. Look at that broken plate! It was part of the set. How will I ever replace it? She moved the plate, and we all stared in silence at the neat round hole in the tablecloth and the bullet embedded in the mahogany table. Grandma Mercer was the first to speak. That shooting gave me an appetite. Somebody passed me the potatoes. So, yeah. Just a typical Plum family dinner. Yeah. Just more caricatures sitting around the table. Yep. <laughs> that's how we do things in Jersey, right? Okay, that's just like all your family dinners, right? In Jersey? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Everything's legal in New Jersey, right? <laughs> Except for bail jumping. Not legal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our next dramatic reading is. Uh, slight flashbacks for me to Gerald's Game by Stephen King. And it's it's one of those sexy, problematic adventures that Morelli and Stephanie have where... What just happened? Oh, was this when he came to get the car back? Yes. Yep. Okay, yeah. Oh, distributor yeah. cap. He's, he's at her place because he saw his car there, but she took the distributor cap out like you do, so he cannot start it. So he's coming to her place to ask for it, and she won't give it back. And Oh, and she was in the shower at the time, so he kind of questioned her, and then he handcuffs her to the shower rod. And, but also uh, he broke into her apartment like a creepy psycho. <laughs> yes, like a cool, sexy, creepy psycho, or whatever. 
Um, and so for this one, I will be reading the part of Stephanie and Kate will be Morelli. Give me your wrist. Pervert. You wish. He flicked the cuff out and clicked it onto my right wrist. I yanked my right arm back hard and kicked at him, but it was difficult to maneuver in the tub. He sidestepped my kick and locked the remaining steel bracelet under the shower curtain rod. I gasped and froze, unable to believe what had just happened. Morelli stepped back and looked at me, doing a slow, whole-body scan. You want to tell me where the cap is? I was incapable of speech, bereft of bravado. I could feel the flush of apprehension and embarrassment staining my cheeks, constricting my throat. Wonderful. Do the silent thing. You can hang there forever for all I care. He rummaged through the vanity drawers, emptied the wastebasket, and took the lid off the toilet tank. He stormed out of the bathroom without giving me so much as a backward glance. I could hear him methodically, professionally moving through my apartment, searching every square inch. Silverware clanked, drawers slammed, closet doors were wrenched open. There were sporadic patches of quiet, followed by mutterings. I tried hanging my full weight on the bar, hoping to bend it, but the rod was industrial strength, built to endure. At last, Morelli appeared in the bathroom doorway. Well, now what? Just came back to take another look. Cold? A grin surfaced at the corners of his mouth as his eyes locked halfway down my chest. When I got loose, I was going to track him down like a dog. I didn't care if he was innocent or guilty, and I didn't care if it took the rest of my life. I was going to get Morelli. Go to hell. The grin widened. You're lucky I'm a gentleman. There are individuals out there who take advantage of a woman in your situation. Spare me. It's been a pleasure. Wait a minute. You're not leaving, are you? Afraid so. What about me? What about the handcuffs? He debated his options for a moment. He stepped off into the kitchen and returned with the portable phone. I'm going to lock the front door when I leave, so make sure whoever you call has a key. Nobody has a key. I'm sure you'll think of something. Call the police. Call the fire department. Call the fucking Marines. I'm naked! He smiled and winked and walked out the door. So yeah, just some hashtag cool interactions between a girl and her romantic interest. (laughs) Oof. Sexy. All right, and then our final dramatic reading is going to be um, an interaction between Stephanie and Lula and Jackie, her prostitute friends slash informers, and Rachel will be Stephanie Plum, I will be Lula, and Kate will be Jackie. Lula and Jackie were hawking wares on the corner, just like always. They were sweating and swinging in the heat, yelling out intimate pet names and graphic suggestions to potential customers. I parked close by, set the six-pack on the hood, and popped one open. Lula eyed the beer. You trying to lure us away from our corner, girl? I grinned. I sort of liked them. Thought you might be thirsty. Shit. Thirsty ain't the half of it. Lula sauntered over, took a beer and chugged some. Don't know why I'm wasting my time standing out. Nobody wants to fuck in this weather. Jackie followed. You shouldn't be doing that. Your old man gonna get mad. Huh. I suppose I care. Dumbass prick pimp. Don't see him standing out here in the sun, do you? So what's the word on Morelli? Anything happening? 
Haven't seen him. Haven't seen the van, neither. You care anything about Carmen? Like what? Like, is she around somewhere? Lula was wearing a halter top with a lot of boob hanging out. She rolled the cold can of beer across her chest. I figured it was a wasted effort. She'd need a keg to cool off a chest that size. Don't hear nothing about Carmen. An ugly thought flashed through my mind. Carmen ever spend time with Ramirez? Sooner or later, everybody spend time with Ramirez. You ever spend time with him? Not me. He liked to do his magic on skinny pussy. Suppose he wanted to do his magic on you. Would you go with him? Honey, nobody refuses Ramirez nothing. I hear he abuses women. Lots of men abuse women. Sometimes men get in a mood. Sometimes they're sick. Sometimes they're freaks. I hear Ramirez is a freak. Lula looked down the street to the gym, her eyes locked on the second-story windows. Yeah, he's a freak. He scares me. I had a friend go with Ramirez, and he cut her bad. Right, and then we'll stop here, because then it gets kind of graphic and gross. I mean, it was already gross, but it gets grosser. You can imagine. Yeah. So, you can you can see what we're talking about there with Lula and Jackie. And also just the weird mix of tone. Like, sometimes she's making jokes about how Lula's boobs are huge, and then all of a sudden they're talking about, like, really graphic sexual assaults. Like, within, like, a couple sentences. Yeah. Yeah. In our notes, we all, I think, use the word whiplash to describe reading this, because it is definitely like, oh, prostitutes are hilarious. Oh, but sometimes their customers really graphically abuse them, and that's not funny. But also boobs. What? (laughs) Yeah, I I just didn't know where I was supposed to be some of these times. Like, you feel bad for laughing, but then... eh. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what's going on in One for the Money. And now we'll move on to our game of Would You Rather, and I'll ask, would you rather bang Ranger or Morelli? Uh, Absolutely Ranger. I was super disappointed that it was very clear from the start that Morelli was going to be Stephanie's love interest, because Ranger seemed so much cooler and such a better character, and... I liked him a lot, and I was sad that, you know, he was deus ex machina out for the second half of the book. Yeah. Yeah, again, like, huge spoilers for the rest of the series, but this becomes, like, the major love triangle for the rest of the series. He doesn't go away. He comes back a lot, and he, like, gets, like, more and more mysterious and sexy as he goes along. So I'm definitely in the ranger camp, too. Also, if you see the movie, he's played by this actor, Daniel Sunjata, who people might know. He's in, like a bunch of tv stuff he was in devil wears prada but he's like way hotter (laughs) although he's like apparently he's apparently like a creepy 9-11 truther but like also super hot (laughs) uh everybody's got a flaw i guess um yeah obviously ranger he never handcuffs her to the shower for one no he saves her yeah yeah we cut off before that he saves her and is is nice about it not too creepy um, so you say it's a love triangle. Does she ever, like, definitively hook up with Ranger, or is it always just, like, flirtation? You actually want to know? You're not going to read to find out? <laughs> please, please spoil me. <laughs> yes, she does. She does sleep with both of them at different points. Um, and in the latest book, I don't know, there's a, if anyone's interested, there's an excerpt on Janet Ivanovich's website from the next, the most recent book, and her and Morelli are breaking up again, so... Who knows if this is, like, when Major comes in and seals the deal. 
Not that I think he's like super into marriage, but you know, make an honest man. Maybe by like the twenty fifth book, like that seems like a good milestone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, but but oh. yeah, Ranger Sex is is definitely in in the canon. Good, good for them. Okay. Uh, would you rather eat pineapple upside down cake with the Plum family or eat a steak dinner with Morelli? A uh, cake, always cake. Cake wins. Even if I had to sit with an excruciatingly annoying family, I would still get cake out of it. And hey, I've sat with my family for worse, so. <laughs> yeah, and I think the grandma actually sounds kind of funny. I mean, I, I guess Stephanie likes her more than the mom anyway. Yeah, I would definitely go with the cake. And, you know, as, as you might recall, I am vegetarian, so this was a much easier choice for me. There is a, like, a long description of the steak dinner that Morelli cooks for her, and I guess he's a good cook. So I didn't know if you ate meat, if that might be more of a um, persuasion. I don't know. Rachel, what's your thoughts? I No, I do eat meat, and I'm still going for the cake, because, like, every time Stephanie goes home, she ends up with tons of delicious leftovers to take back, whereas every time Morelli cooks for her, there's, like, this implied idea that she's going to have sex with him afterwards. So mm-hmm. I'd rather have leftovers than, like, Morelli sex. Same. Great. Okay, last up. Would you rather go to New Jersey to track down criminals or to fight a duel? Since everything is legal in New Jersey. Except pumping your own gas. <laughs> right. Uh-oh. And uh, bail skipping. Yes, bail skipping. Those two things. Not legal in New Jersey. <laughs> also, left turns in a lot of places. <laughs> New Jersey has more rules than Hamilton would lead you to believe. <laughs> You know, I feel like there's, like, a 50-50 chance of death either way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm going to go with duel just because it's, like, once and it's over. So if I survive, great. I don't have to do it again. If I don't survive, well, oh, well. But if I'm tracking down criminals, I feel like that's kind of, like, a repeated thing. There's more chances for death there. That makes sense. I mean, mostly I want to go to New Jersey to, like go to all my favorite places and get good bagels. But if I had to do one of those two things, I'd fight in a duel. Who would you duel? John Barrowman, obviously. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I think I pledged to be your second in that. Uh, So I guess I'm doing that, too. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I would vote to track down criminals, and I just wouldn't be greedy like Stephanie. I think I would just stick to the real... Like, um, low bail, easy cases. Just as, like, part-time work. <laughs> yeah, and I think I'd probably have to go with the duel just because, yeah, it's a better story than, like, taking a, what, what was there, like, an old man exhibitionist you had to put in her car or something? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can't, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> so, Yeah. And also, it, that would be, like, if it's my first time going to New Jersey, I'd like it to be meaningful, so I'll, I'll go fight a duel. All right. Well, I'll see you ladies in Weehawken. <laughs> Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, could we postpone that a little bit? That's a little early for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hit snooze probably a couple times on that duel. <laughs> uh, I'm already on, to my way, on my way to work at that point. <laughs> Uh, let's move on to our reader's advisory where we'll suggest some stuff to read instead of or in addition to one for the money. Uh, I'm going to start right at the top and say, uh, Mom, I know you're listening to this and you should really read the rest of the Harry Potter books. They're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> the, ha- 
Hamilton just came out today, the day that we're recording this. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all like secretly resenting talking about this instead of reading Hamilton. We do it for you guys, listeners. <laughs> Definitely read that instead of reading any of these books. <laughs> And if you do want to read any more of these books, they've done a really nice thing for you because they've become so cliched. You can just go on the the website, the author's website, and they have little snippets of the plot for each one. And then they just summarize them with by saying, like, this is the one with X. So there's, like, the one with the giraffe, the one with the love potion, the one with the vampire. So you can Wait, just pick which one that sounds interesting ones? to you. Are those real ones? <laughs> 100% all of those are real. Those all sound way better really? than this one. <laughs> maybe i will read some more of these or maybe just the summaries (laughs) and that you do definitely absolutely do not have to read them in order you can read any one of them at any time because there's no continuity at all except for that the same characters show up so aces um all right well not that i recommend it but (laughs) uh i mentioned this earlier the only Things like what this reminded me of of stuff that I read and enjoy was some um, different comic series. So I'm just going to recommend um, the Alias, which is Jessica Jones, the Alias comics by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos. Um, the new Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat, by Kate Leth and Brittany Williams, um, where she, Hellcat was working as all kinds of things, but she had been a private investigator. And then um, She Hulk. Uh, there's a newer series. I m- really like this. Uh, I think it's from like 2004. I like the 2000 whatever She-Hulk by Dan Slott. Um, you know, she's a lawyer, but also, well, she has Patsy Walker and some other private investigators. There are all these sort of comics that are sort of ladies solving crimes or doing some kind of detective work in some way. Uh, and I would definitely recommend all of them as a cooler, stronger, strong female protagonist than Stephanie Plum. But... My mom probably wouldn't like them because she doesn't like comics. So maybe not not RA for all. I, in addition to all of Renata's suggestions, the newer She-Hulk that she was referring to, which is by um, Charles Soule and uh, Javier Polito, I think is his name. I don't remember off the top of my head. I'll look that up before she puts it in. But um, that's... Uh, Jen working at her own like really shitty law firm and it's great there's a lot of like this sort of hilarious private and guest investigative sort of stuff going on there too so it's very similar I think in tone to uh to this book I read the first of the in death series by JD Robb aka Nora Roberts so if you're not already on the Nora Roberts train after our Black Hills episode uh you should try that the Rizzolian Isles TV show. I think it's maybe based on books. I don't remember. It was these like cool, cool lady cop and a cool lady coroner and they solved crimes and had sexual tension and I was into it. I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm pretty sure it is books. Also. Yeah. And the number one ladies detective agency by Alexander McCall Smith. That's also a series, you know, again, more of the same ladies, et cetera, et cetera. But Yeah. So there's also a series by a woman named Sarah Strohmeyer. If you liked the kind of ineptitude of uh, Stephanie Plum, but you wish that, like like Renata was saying earlier, she sort of used her like inherent community connections or like used her femininity and her like feminine powers in a more productive way or a more interesting way. Um, it's this series called the Bubbles Yablonski series, and Bubbles is a hairdresser who also solves mysteries. 
but like does a lot of the like using gossip and using like under undervalued feminine skills to solve mysteries. It's still pretty silly and it's still got some very like um, stereotypical kind of romantic comedy stuff going on, but it's at least a little more interesting. And then I also thought about the Gail Carriger writes a series. It starts with a book called Soulless and she's not, she's solving mysteries. It's a little more on the fantasy sci-fi side because they're like werewolves and vampires and things. Um, but it's a strong female character who's got, it's got a strong um, romance element to it, even a little bit of like, like love triangle stuff going on. And, um, you know, much funner and funnier than the uh, Stephanie Plum books are. Oh, and then there's the film, which I don't recommend. It is not that good. But if you read this book and like, this sounds like it should be made into a movie, there is a film starring Katherine Heigl. Instead, I think you should watch 27 Dresses with Katherine Heigl, which also has that antagonistic relationship between her and the main love interest. And um, they work it out in the end. Spoilers. Okay, well, sounds good. We'll have all of that, including by the time we post it, we'll figure out if Resilient Isles is a book or not. And we will definitively post those <laughs> at worstbestsellers.com under the reader's advisory page for this episode. So check that out. And now we'll move on to our candy pairing where we'll tell you what candy we would recommend for this book. And I will start with uh, the Baskin Robbins sugar-free hard candy, which I, I think they do actually still make it, but I feel like it was way more popular in the 90s or maybe possibly just in my mom's household um, you know, I, like, I enjoyed it when I was a kid, and I think in the 90s we thought everything sugar-free was, like, good for you, and now it's kind of like, oh, probably not, not anymore. Uh, and that, that's basically the vibe of this book. Like, in the 90s, cool, and now it's maybe, like, melted and stuck somewhere in the pantry. Yeah, so I went with the bubble beeper, <laughs> Which is, I don't know if everyone's going to remember these, but when we were, when I at least was in uh, middle school around the time, maybe a little earlier than I was reading these books, there are these plastic beeper-shaped boxes that came with bubblegum slices in them, and the bubblegum said, like, had little digital messages on it, like, message received, and call you later, and you could clip it onto your pants and, like, pretend you had a beeper, and... Um, it's this kind of thing that I thought was sort of cool in when that, in the 90s when I was in elementary school and middle school. Like beepers we also thought were cool and kind of like grown up and sexy and sophisticated. But now on reflection, it was like super dumb that all these kids were walking around with like fake plastic beepers full of gum. And the gum wasn't actually very good. And yeah. Also, I was reading there's I'll, maybe we can link to this article about how beepers were super associated with uh drugs in the 90s like people who were selling drugs and buying drugs all had beepers not just doctors also drug dealers so there's a lot of drug stuff going on in this book so also appropriate yeah let's link to that and also dennis stuffy the beeper king <laughs> and <Dennis Duffy>. <laughs> <laughs> those are the main people who have beepers <laughs> Uh, so my candy pairing is Warheads, which was the hip candy of my 90s Jersey youth. Uh, and at the time, you know, we thought that it was really intense and hardcore to, like, eat a bunch of Warheads because they were, like, so sour and messed up your mouth and whatever. But in retrospect, the whole thing was pretty ridiculous. And that's, you know, none of us said something plum related. That would have been a good 
joke to make. Oh, I would have. God. There is a, um, a Christmas Stephanie Plum series story called Sug- Visions of Sugar Plums. So. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Stephanie <laughs> Benner should beat you to it, yeah. Okay, well, as long as someone has done that, then I feel good about it. And now we will move on to our favorite game, The Rock, Paper, Snicked. Where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book, and Rachel will choose which one would most enhance the book, or choose paper to leave the book as is, which is probably what all of our moms would pick for sure. (laughs) All right. Uh, This is kind of a deep dive into stuff that happened in the book that we sort of glossed over, but I'm sure you'll be able to follow it anyway. If Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, he would be a loyal customer of Sal the Butcher's. Sal would provide him with all of his cod and other fish, but he would be unaware of the terrible, shady backroom dealings happening at Sal's. Um, He just happens to go there to get his fish, and one day when he's there, he overhears the commotion when Stephanie identifies the man who works at Sal's as the mysterious witness in the shooting, and thinks that he's up to something shady and goes follows him to Atlantic City. So The Rock follows her because, you know, it's a small town and he knows that, you know, she's been in trouble lately and he wants to make sure she's okay because he's a good guy like that. So he follows her to Atlantic City and, you know, Morelli also follows her. And once they're all there, he talks some sense into them. So Morelli kind of goes along with his plan, doesn't need to be locked into a refrigerated car with a bunch of corpses in order to turn himself over to the police and stephanie behaves a little bit more irrationally about the entire thing so they drop morelli off with the cops and they coherently and calmly explain the plan and all of the um murdery things that have happened and how it's all connected and then the rock follows stephanie home to get her settled And when they get there, of course, Jimmy Alpha is waiting for them, but he is not expecting The Rock. So it's easy for The Rock to take Jimmy out uh, before he can threaten Stephanie any further. So Stephanie calls the cops and no one is shot or dead. And justice is served for everyone except The Rock, who now has to find a new place to get his cod. Well, also, Kate, I don't know if you saw this article, but recently The Rock has revealed that he is sick of cod and he doesn't eat it anymore. Um, he's on to other lean proteins. <laughs> this is real. So, this is real celebrity <laughs> gossip. <laughs> this is true. Um, so, so it is happy for the rock anyway because he probably doesn't want any more cod anyway. From all sorry. right. <laughs> well, good. That makes it a less sad ending. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, so if Wolverine were in this book. Like, Ranger, as portrayed, is, like, basically already a Wolverine. And, in fact, he, Stephanie's like, why are you a bounty hunter? And he's like, it's what I do best, which is pretty much, like, what Wolverine would say. Um, And Ranger also used to be in, quote, special forces, which is, like, really shadowy and not uh, specified. So I'm going to assume that it means Weapon X, and he is bros with Wolverine. And so since they're bros, when Ranger gets shot, Wolverine hears about it and just comes to visit his bro in the hospital. And Ranger tells Wolverine about Stephanie and asks asks Wolverine to just check up on her because she's pretty clearly incompetent, but trying. And so uh, Wolverine does, and he assumes that her reluctance to file a restraining order against Ramirez is just due to uh, lack of trust in authority, which he totally understands and respects. And so he calls in his pal Jessica Jones to help out. 
And she solves the case and gets both Ramirez and Alpha put in jail without anybody getting hurt and grudgingly serves as a competent lady role model for Stephanie. Wow. Those are both really good. And I like how you both, like, minimize the amount of violence that had to take place. And now Stephanie doesn't have, like, the crazy psychological damage of actually having shot and killed someone, which I don't think they're ever actually going to deal with in the series. Um, I kind of feel like Renata undercut Kate's by, by bringing up the cod thing. Though. <laughs> I'm, I, I was meaning to help out. Like that would be the <laughs> ending after, after this is over, he could find a new grocery store. Mm. Cause he wouldn't need the cod anyway now, but at the time, of okay. course he did. So he's, you know, he still would have been there at the time for his cod. <laughs> okay. And, and well, butcher doesn't just sell fish. They sell all sorts of other lean meats. It's true. It's true. <laughs> all right, all all those things considered, I think I am going to go for the rock. I just I can't see Ranger having like a lot of bros. I don't know. They're I guess they're both loners, so maybe like they have some kind of loner code. Yeah, but... Wolverine totally has loner bro code. Come on, it's totally a thing. I can see it, but, <laughs> but the realistic detail of the cod just sort of sold me. Fine, and uh, you know, I, acceptable, of course. I would definitely like this book more if the Rock was in it. Yeah, I also like that The Rock used to be a wrestler, right? And uh, Ramirez is like a, a boxer. So I think that they they would like be um, equals. They would it'd be a fair fight when he takes them out. I mean, kind of. I don't think anybody is a fair fight against The Rock. But... <laughs> <laughs> sure. Fair-ish. All right. Well, that sounds good. That's how we play The Rock, Paper, Snicked, the game where everyone wins. Yes. Except for cod, because it gets eaten. (laughs) Or scorned. (laughs) And now we'll move on to the moral of the story. My moral of this book is, sometimes bitches do not get stuff done and need a man to do it for them. My moral of the story is, when in doubt, spandex is always the correct sartorial decision, no matter what the context. You know, I think Wolverine would also agree with that. That's very true. (laughs) And my moral of the story is keep your house bugged at all times as Stephanie's bugged house was the thing that saved her in several different situations, which wasn't creepy at all for Morelli to just fill her house with bugs, including some that she didn't know about. But, you know, (laughs) I wonder if nowadays if Stephanie just like live tweets things. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag help. (laughs) (laughs) At Morelli. Gun emoji, gun emoji, gun emoji. (laughs) Probably. That's probably what she does. (laughs) Okay, and now we'll move on to Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte, who's already weighed in a few times while recording, but this will be his designated spot to give his opinions about the book. All right, Duarte, I agree. It is pretty ridiculous that Stephanie has a pet hamster. I think we all know that a cat would be a much superior pet for her to have. Uh, probably it would have would be better for self-defense, too. You know, if, if some crazy boxer tried to break into my apartment, I know you would bite him. And I would appreciate that. It's true. Rex really did not assist Stephanie in any way any of the times people came at her in her apartment. He was a terrible guard hamster. (laughs) All right. Well, Duarte, thank you as ever for your opinions. And now do any humans have any closing thoughts about the book? Nope. 
Yeah, just just don't go back and read things that you thought were really fun when you were 12. <laughs> just, eh, they're probably not that great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my closing thought, I guess, is moms should read whatever they want to read. They've been through a lot. Let's just let them unwind with <laughs> Stephanie Plum and not shame them too much about it. Uh, otherwise, also, I don't know, are there dads who read this? I, I don't want to gender essentialize, but I'm pretty sure it's the only moms. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Whoever, if you're reading this and you like it, okay, but probably if you've never read these before and you were picking them up in the year of 2016, you're probably going to be like, oof. Yeah, if you've somehow avoided them till now, probably they're not your thing because there are a lot of them. And they, like, this is literal bestsellers, like millions and millions and millions of copies. You can buy these at the grocery store. Yeah. So... You know, good on you, Janet Ivanovich. You've clearly hit into something that moms are wanting to read about. So, hey. Yay, moms. <laughs> yeah. Mom, thanks for everything you've done for me. <laughs> Keep on it. I'll, I'll, get you, I'll get you 23 for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and Harry Potter. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rachel, for joining us for this. Thank you very much. It was a delight. <laughs> And uh, you can find us as a podcast on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S. Because Stephanie had to pawn our S to make her rent. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> very sad. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at Worst Bestseller spelled normally. We are on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you uh, subscribe to us on those things, you could also leave a good review of us. We would really like that. If you don't want to leave a good review of us, Stephanie Plum might hunt you down and not very threateningly shake you down somehow. She might. <laughs> uh, you can follow me personally on Twitter at 14 across. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Renata Snacks. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Miss RRG. All right. And we will be back at you in two weeks with some cool retro techno thriller with ruthless.com by tom clancy how exciting can't wait i wonder if ruthless.com is a website (laughs) we'll we'll check that out and report back in two weeks (laughs) so (laughs) until then rachel thanks again for joining us everyone else thanks for listening bye Carmen San Diego? Diego?